Welcome back to the Rights and Liberties podcast of the Sunwater Institute. Today we will discuss Federalist II. I like to organize these podcasts around three big ideas. So, here are three big ideas about Federalist II. Big idea one. Jay asserts the people must cede to government, quote, some of their natural rights, end quote. Big idea two, and this, I think, functions as the main point of Federalist II, that there should be a national government, not some other arrangement of states. And you'll recall that this is a theme of Federalist One. Big Idea Three, what sustains this main point, Big Idea Two, what sustains the idea that there should be a national government and not some other arrangement of states, in part, is an assertion of the Union as an ongoing matter. Now, one doesn't have to go hunting for these ideas. After some initial throat clearing, Jay articulates each of these briefly in the opening few paragraphs of the essay. One of the arresting features of 18th century American political thought is the extent to which it is grounded in 17th and 18th century European political thought. Both a kind of empiricism, just the facts please, and a large measure of theoretical novelty concerning politics are often attributed to the Americans of the late 18th century. Each of these claims is true, but neither is exhaustive. One does not have to look very hard during this period to find thinkers speaking in quite abstract terms, as well as the empirical terms. And their terms of abstract debate often reflect consideration of European political thought. In Federalist II, Jay characterized the relationship between natural right and political rule that would have been instantly recognizable to those familiar with Locke, Hobbes, Spinoza, or other 17th and 18th century political theorists, quoting Jay, quote, Nothing is more certain than the indispensable necessity of government, and it is equally undeniable that whenever and however it is instituted, the people must cede to it some of their natural rights in order to vest it with requisite powers, end quote. On this account, Government is necessary, and it is created by people surrendering some of their individual natural right in order to vest the state with political right. Now, the idea of natural right had a range of meanings over time, but this brief description in Federalist II of how people must surrender a portion of their natural right to create sovereign political power describes the main elements of a bare-bones social contract theory. Jay reminds us in Federalist II that ideas about natural rights still held sway in the ratification debates. The second big idea, and what looks to be the main overt point of Federalist II, is that there should be a national government, not some other arrangement of states. You'll recall this was a theme of Federalist I. It has long been a commonplace for politicians to emphasize the diversity of ways of life in the United States, such that passing the same laws for South Carolina as for New Hampshire, passing the same laws for Georgia as for Maine, would be an idea taken to be self-evidently dubious. So the claim here is that some room should be left for state-level decision-making in the face of potential national law. But much of this idea is driven in these examples by the choice of states far apart. 
one can more easily imagine passing the same laws for New Hampshire and Massachusetts. Jay's warning concerns not just the failure of the union resulting potentially in 13 separate political entities trying to make a go of things, but, apparently more importantly, the possibility of regional governments made up of some, though not all, of the states. At the end of Federalist II, Jay cited three or four confederacies as a potential outcome, one that might be dangerous to the Federalist project, in part because a legal regime acceptable to all states in such a smaller confederacy may be easier to envision. One can imagine in rough terms how the Union might have divided up into three geographically contiguous parts, New England, the southern states, the mid-Atlantic. Big Idea 3. Big Idea 3 is driven by Big Idea 2. Big Idea 2 held that the Union would be desirable. Big Idea 3 asserts that support for the Union is support for the continuity of this unified political form. When asserting the desirability of the Union, Jay described his argument in terms of interest. Quote, It is well worthy of consideration, therefore, whether it would conduce more to the interest of the people of America that they should, to all general purposes, be one nation under one federal government, or that they should divide themselves into separate confederacies and give to the head of each the same kind of powers which they are advised to place in one national government. End quote. So, that is an argument about interest. What is in the best interest of Americans? Jay went on, again, this is Big Idea 3, Jay went on to describe the belief in the advantages of the Union as a feature of historical fact, quoting Jay again, quote, It has until lately been a received and uncontradicted opinion that the prosperity of the people of America depended on their continuing firmly united, and the wishes, prayers, and efforts the best and wisest citizens have been constantly directed to that object, end quote. Now, between Big Idea 2 and Big Idea 3, there isn't a contradiction or even a large tension between the ideas. But it is worth thinking further about the difference between these two cases. Big Idea 2, we should have a national government. Big Idea 3, again quoting Jay, quote, a received and uncontradicted opinion that the prosperity of the people of America depended on their continuing firmly united, end quote. One of these says, we should do this thing. The other says, we should continue to do this thing. Of course, it can be useful to convince people to do a thing by saying that they have done it before, or even that they have never stopped doing it. Beyond that, I think people have an image of the late 1700s as a period during which people surrendered their state identity in favor of a national identity. Jay's argument reminds us that during the ratification debates, there may be, it may be useful to think of this in terms of continuing uh, a national identity that had already been established. Here's a lengthy passage from Federalist II. Quote, it has until lately been a received and uncontradicted opinion that the prosperity of the people of America depended on their continuing firmly united, and the wishes, prayers, and efforts of our best and wisest citizens have been constantly directed to that end. But politicians now appear who insist that this opinion is erroneous and that instead of looking for safety and happiness in union, we ought to seek it in a division of states into distinct confederacies or sovereignties. 
However extraordinary this new doctrine may appear, it nevertheless has its advocates. Whatever may be the arguments or inducements which have wrought this change in the sentiments and declarations of these gentlemen, it certainly would not be wise in the people at large to adopt these new political tenets without being fully convinced that they are founded in truth and sound policy, end quote. So for Jay, it isn't the case that the Constitution is forging different entities into one, so much as returning to or reaffirming an existing unity. So unity is not a novel idea. He argued here that the, quote, new doctrine, end quote, one that appears, quote, extraordinary, end quote, is one of redividing the United States into three or four. Some may be brought to this novel idea of the United States not being United States by arguments, but others by, quote, inducements, end quote. So, big idea three. The Constitution exists to keep the United States united. So in that way, it isn't a novelty, but rather a continuation of the status quo. We like to end each podcast by talking about how each Federalist paper bears upon the present and the future. Now, ideas such as unity and particularity are very broad. It's hard to get much analytical bite out of them to talk about politics conceived in a more ordinary sense. But one thing to stress, I think, is the almost too obvious fact that this unity is a function of geographical proximity. Again, quoting Jay, quote, It has often given me pleasure to observe that independent America was not composed of detached and distant territories, but then one connected, fertile, widespreading country was the portion of our Western sons of liberty, end quote. One aspect of the rise of technology has been the de-linking of geographical location from other aspects of life, and one may wonder about the political relevance of the ways that technology can serve to bring people together from different locations. We see this already with work and with hobbies. But the political relevance of this social activity taking place without respect to geography is not yet clear. Scholars of nationalism often think in terms of that which holds a nation together, apart from political factors. Such questions take on distinct significance as physical proximity becomes less important. The de-linking of geographical proximity from other aspects of life is not quite a new idea but changes in technology may make it newly relevant. Jay spoke in terms of a, quote, connected, fertile, widespreading country, end quote. And this recalls to us the ways in which we are connected, both spatially and otherwise. Thank you for listening to the Rights and Liberties podcast. Please visit us at sunwater.org, and we look forward to you joining us to discuss Federalist 3. Thank you.